So if you have been on social media at all this week, you'll perhaps have noticed that there's a lot of heat that has been produced on social media due to a very hot political issue. Now, we're not going to get into that too much, if at all, but it's going to be a launching point for our discussion this morning. You see the state of Alabama has passed a law that would, out, that would outlaw abortion in any context. And I'm not going to talk about abortion pro, you know, life pro-choice. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has an official stance on the issue that you can consult with. You can even visit with me afterwards if you, if you just really want to know what I think. But I'm not here to, to uh, pontificate about that. But there was a tweet that went out that was viral, at least in some context, and I happened to notice the tweet, and it was by a young lady who, from the best that I can gather, lives in Israel. She's a, a Jewish young lady, and she has a little check mark next to her name, which means that she's someone important. So it was an interesting tweet, and, and she, she shared this thought that I thought was very interesting. She said, Dear pro-life friends, what have you personally done to support lower-income single mothers. She said, I'll wait. Now this, as I said, was sort of a viral tweet, and it sort of ended up backfiring on her because she had all sorts of responses about, like, well, actually, we do stuff for single mothers personally. And so I just thought it was interesting, but I... I, Now, as I said, you know, this is not a a sermon on pro-life, pro-choice, but... I would just ask that question of us as well. Do we affirm life in all of its beauty and intricacies and all of its needs? And specifically, what about those who are in need and we have privilege that we can help them? We have been in a journey together the last, I don't know, few times, three or four times we've been together on, during doing a series called Blessed Are the Poor. And the very first teaching on this topic, I put this number up on the screen. And some of you, bless your hearts, thought that was the number for a marathon, the miles in a marathon. And I could only wish this was the number of miles in a marathon. Cameron, who's running a marathon tomorrow, could only wish as well. This will be right around the time where he is thinking to himself, I wish we were done by now. <laughs> Usually around mile 20, 22 or so. But this is not the number that's in a marathon. This is the number of the poverty rate of the city of Bangor. And I propose that maybe the best metric to determine if we are being God's people and if we are doing God's work is if we saw this number go down. Now, there are many, many factors that contribute to the the reality of a poverty number, but you and I are being called by God because throughout the scriptures, and we're looking especially at the book of Luke, as it traces out this theme of rich and poor, but, there, but, but God is calling us as his people to be those who reach out and not only provide services for the poor, but one of the challenges that we were given, or I feel like you know, God brought to our attention, is that God invites us to bring those who are poor into our own kitchens and into our dining rooms and have them sit at our tables. And when we have a party... 
don't just invite the rich. Jesus says, in fact, invite the poor, those who can't do anything for you. And so I gave a very specific challenge that I know all of you are working out. You are, you are as we speak, planning or plotting or you've already done it to invite somebody who is impoverished into your home to have a meal. Amen? Well, today we're going to look at another passage, yet another one from the book of Luke that talks about this issue of rich and poor, wealth and poverty. And it's a, probably a f- fairly familiar teaching that many people, even if you are not a Christian, you have heard this expression that is used in this particular passage. But we'll get there. And We're going now to the book of Luke. Chapter 18, as I said, a lot of Luke's writing and and the the parables and the stories that he tells, uh, that Jesus tells in the book of Luke are are addressing this issue. And so we pick it up in Luke chapter 18, and we're beginning in verse 16. And there's, there's a little context to the actual story that we're going to look at. And it's this. Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. That's a very interesting uh, uh, expression that Jesus uses. And I've, I've been thinking, why does Jesus say that we need to be like little children if we want to go to the kingdom of God? And there's a lot of different reasons why I'm sure Jesus shared this. But one of those was brought acutely home to me on Thursday. Camille had been gone for the day. She was down uh, visiting a classroom in, in Freeport at Pine Tree Academy. And when she came home... The children ran out to see her. They, you know, embraced her. And you know what the first thing was that they did? They had stories to tell her. Children love to tell stories. I know when I'm, when I'm uh, away for a little while, I come back, and that's what they want to do. They want to tell you everything that has taken place. Sometimes they get me in trouble, you know, when... When mom is home and I've let them do some things that maybe mom wouldn't let them do. It's like, okay, guys, you know, you don't have to, no, no more stories. But, but kids are evangelists. They have good news and they want to share it. And so they just want to tell people, oh, did you hear, you know, dad, this happened to me or mom, this happened to me. That's just one reason I think that Jesus says we need to become like little children. There's good news to share, of course. The other thing is that they, they have this innocence and this simplicity about them, don't they? They just are who they are. They don't try to pretend to be somebody else. And I think that's, that's probably one of the reasons why this little admonition is brought before the story that comes next. Because we see this contrast between the innocence of, this, of, of these children that Jesus says we need to be like and the pretense of the man that Jesus encounters next. Because look what happens. Once a religious leader... Other ways, other places, it's, it's, it's this young ruler, it says. This, this religious leader asked Jesus this question. He said, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? This is a very interesting question because if you were to go through the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, you would note that there's not a lot of discussion about eternal life. You see, the great The great hope of the Jewish people was that God would bring them into Israel and that they would eternally inherit that land. That was the great hope, beginning back with Abraham, that God made the promise to to Abraham and his children that they would come in and they they would inherit the land of Israel. And so this is a very, 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 you know, devoted 
issue that it was in the Jewish mind, but the idea of eternal life was something that seemingly was a little new in the New Testament. We get hints of it in the book of Daniel, where Daniel chapter 12 says that all will be raised, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. But it's, a, it's not a, an issue that is often talked about in the Old Testament. But during that, that time between the Old and the New Testament, there started to be more and more discussion about living eternally in the age to come. And so this, this, this rich young ruler, as we often call him, he is concerned, he is, he is curious. Okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Now, I need to pause right here because I think many of us would be tempted to look at his question and say, well, that's not the right question. It's not what you do to inherit eternal life. It's what you believe. It's who you believe. And many of us would love for Jesus to respond by saying, all you got to do is believe, right? That's what we want Jesus to say. That's what I would be inclined to say. That's what, that's what I would say if somebody came to me. And yet that's not what Jesus says, is it? Notice what he goes on to say. He says, first of all, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. So he's, he's pointing out to this man that, of course, if he's calling Jesus good, he must be God. He said, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, now it's fascinating because in the book of Mark, when Mark tells the story, he says, now Jesus looking at the young man, it says he loved him. He loved him. So Jesus looks at this young man and he has a heart of compassion. He has a heart of love and of mercy and longing and affection. And he just wants this this young man to be brought into his kingdom. And so he looks at him and he, he says, there is still one thing you haven't done. And again, right here, I want Jesus to say, okay, yeah, you've done a good job, but... All of, your, all of your good works can't earn you salvation. That's what I want Jesus to say. That's not what he says, is it? He says, nope, there's, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions. Sell how many? All your possessions. And give the money to the poor. How many possessions? How many? Sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. I don't know about you, but if I were Jesus' disciples right then and there, I would have said, bro, you, you messed it up here, man. Like this guy, if we get him into our group, woo, you can, the, the, the mission work we can do with his paycheck, we, could, we would have it made. But Jesus didn't cut corners. Jesus didn't lower the bar because he loved him. Again, I think many of us are unbothered by how Jesus didn't make it about faith. He made it about works. And we want to go immediately like to one of Paul's writings. And we want to say, well, Jesus, don't you know Paul, what Paul said? Don't you know that? Paul says it's, it's not by works, but it's by faith that we are justified. And yet, you know, we look at this from a very, I would say, Western perspective. We think that there is some 
distinction between faith and works, as though those are two different things. And, you know, the most important thing is the faith. And then, yeah, if we have time, we'll add the works to it. That's not what James says, though, who was Jesus' brother. Jesus said, James said, you say you have faith, and I have works. You show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I didn't put that up on the screen. That's what James said. He says, there's not this distinction. We're not saved by faith. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by faith and works. We are saved by a faith that works. See what I'm saying? See what Jesus is laying down here? And so Jesus makes it plain to this young man, listen, there's going to be some fruit in your life. There's going to be, this is not some false dichotomy between belief and work. Because when the, when the grace of God inhabits our hearts, when it grips our hearts, there's a work that shows in the life. Now check out what happened. But when he, when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. Very sad because he was very rich. You know, the word that is used there for very sad is actually the same term that is used of Jesus when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is wrestling with the weight of the whole world's sin upon his shoulders. It said that he became greatly distressed. And it's the same exact word. So distressed was Jesus that Luke tells us in his account of it that he sweat great drops of blood. And so here's this young man. He was coming, he was coming to Jesus. He was hoping for some answer that could get him into the kingdom of God. And yet when Jesus laid down that cost, it was too great for him. When Jesus saw this, Luke goes on to record, he said how hard it is, how hard it is for the, here's the word, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Well, man, how do we define rich, right? We talked a little bit about this last week. By some standards, most of us in here, perhaps all of us are very, very poor. By other standards, all of us are filthy rich. If you have if you have even a dollar in your bank account, you are doing better than most of the world's population. So Jesus said, it is very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I, I've, been, I've been pondering this, and I've been thinking about this. Why is it so hard for the rich to enter God's kingdom? Why is it so hard for the rich to enter into the ways of God? And the best thing I can come up with is because unlike those innocent children who are who they are, those of us who are rich have a hard time recognizing our true condition. Those of us who are rich have a hard time recognizing who we truly are. And we we put on the clothes to make ourselves look better. And we drive the nice cars to make ourselves feel better. And we do all these things to try to make ourselves feel better about who we are. And we don't recognize our need. We don't recognize our helplessness. We don't recognize that, that we can't do it on our own. That's, I know that's the best I can come up with. Jesus doesn't explain why that is. 
He just simply says it. And then he uses this phrase that, again, many of us, even if we're not Christian, we probably heard before. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the other gospel writers record that the, the, the young man, after being very sorrowful, he turned away and went home because he was greatly rich and he had great possessions. And it reminds me of this, this, this thought that the great Christian theologian G.K. Chesterton said, he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Very interesting. You know, what's fascinating to me is I've had some conversations recently with loved ones who have talked about different political issues and different you know, uh, standards that we should live by. And, and you know, my, one of my loved ones said, oh, we need, to, we need to be people who literally follow the literal word of God. Everything the Bible tells us we need to do, we need to do. And yet we come to this passage and suddenly we like to explain things away, don't we? Now, how much of the Bible are we really following? Now, I would posit to my loved one, I posit to you that, that there are, there's need for contextual interpretation, right? Jesus was speaking to a very specific person in a very specific place at a very specific time in the story. So I'm not saying that all of us right here today have this command that's given to us that we need to go home and sell everything we have. But at the very least, there was this man in this story who had this issue. And all God is asking us to do is to, to, to prayerfully ponder and reflect on the story and how it applies to us. But if we're going to be people of the word, which we are as, as God's people, if we're going to be people of the word, we need to examine the whole word of God and not simply find the commands and the verses that suit our fancy. And we come to the expressions that, that Jesus shares. Often many of them kind of, kind of ir- they irk our evangelical Christian sensibilities. And we'd prefer to stick to Paul and his nice things he says about forgiveness and grace and love and acceptance. And we come to Jesus and we're like, oh yeah, but Jesus didn't really mean what he said. Right? No, he didn't really mean what he said when he said to turn the other cheek, when he said to love your enemies, when he said to sell all you have and give it to the poor. No, 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 no. We're not really that type of Christian. That's not our thing. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do. He's asking us to be clear on divorce and on sexuality, and he's asking us to be clear on abortion and all those other things. But when it comes to the expressions that he actually says in in the Gospels, those don't apply to us. I'm being a little dramatic here, right? But, but this is so often what happens to us. And so when he comes and he has these hard sayings, and in fact, we jumped over it for a second, those, uh, those disciples, they heard what he said, and they said, who can be saved then, Jesus? You see, some of the great heroes of the Jewish faith, the, the Israelite faith, were rich people like Abraham. This guy, the very father of the faith, had it all. And they, they, they lifted him up as the great example of, of the people who, whose God, God's kingdom was all about. And so they said, boy, oh boy, we're in trouble. If, if, if it's easier for a camel to go to the Abnino and for a rich person to be in the kingdom of God, now what did Jesus say? What is impossible for people is possible with God. All God is asking you and asking me to do 
is to come face to face with our, our extreme poverty. That our, our security does not come in our bank account. That our value does not come via our possessions that we have, our houses that we own, our cars that we drive. That our security comes solely in the blood of Jesus. There's this gentleman that, that um, I've been reading a book by. He, he and his wife actually, uh, on behalf of the Mennonite Church of Canada, have, um, they, they sold their possessions. They were, they were taking this literally. They sold all those possessions, and they went, and they decided that they were going to live in, in the most troubled, challenging part of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Believe it or not, there are troubled spots in Winnipeg. Are, are you familiar with the city of Winnipeg? What's that? You have a lot who lives there. Okay. So this, 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 this man and his wife, they felt the call of God to just live among the poorest of the poor. They said, God is calling us to do that. Again, just get rid of all our possessions and to go live with the poor of the poor because if the, if the good news of God's love and his kingdom is going to break in and make sense to those we're trying to share it with, they need to see it, not just hear it. And so they went and they, they've been, they started this congregation, this missional congregation in Winnipeg. And there's, there's a few books that he wrote. And in the first chapter of one of those books that I've been reading, he shares this vision for their church. He shares this vision for who they are as God's people. And it just captivated me. And I'm going to put some of the words up on the screen. Notice what he says. This is from his book, Living Christ Together. Check this out. He says, let me introduce you to the community coming to be known as missional. We are a community because it is the incarnational reflection of the triune God in whose image we are created. Some big words there, but stick with us here. He says, we are a community that prefers walking rather than sitting. Don't you like that idea? We prefer walking to sitting. We're not just here to just listen and to learn and to like, have our minds filled with all these ideas. Those are important. But we are a people who are walking, not sitting. Going where the Spirit has already gone before us, be it in our neighborhood or the ends of the earth. We are united by relationship and mission, not locations and buildings. Isn't that cool? He goes on to say, for us, generosity trumps obligation for all that we have is God's. We seek to give what we have, both financial and otherwise, because we cannot help but want to see his purposes come to fruition. We offer hospitality, opening our homes and our lives to welcome the other. Now check this out. 10% is more likely the amount that remains than what is demanded. And in our mutual generosity, none of us goes without. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful and powerful? Oh, no, no, we give 10%. I gave enough. And yet God is calling us to give all. I once had a, another Mennonite friend when I was living in New Hampshire... He was the director of a Mennonite youth camp. And he said, you know what? My wife and I, our goal in life is to see how little amount of money we can live on so that we can give as much away of it as we can. So we're trying to find that sweet spot so that we can function based upon the minimum that we need. He's like, of course, there comes a time when there's a, there's a balance there because you don't want to be a person who is who is." always needing help from somebody else because then you're just draining from them. 
But that was his goal. And I thought, man, that's really inspiring. The, uh, this author of the book goes on to say, Our success is measured by our obedience to God's calling, most evident in our love for him, for others, for ourselves, and for creation. While we passionately work to build a kingdom that will change the very course of history, we celebrate the transformation of even one life as though it were the greatest triumph of all, because it is. We are ruthlessly committed to people over programs, demanding that the latter always serve the former or it will be abandoned. We cooperate, not compete, seeking not to win the praise or demand the submission of others. Neither do we serve buildings and budgets, but they must serve us as we serve God through serving others. We seek our greatness in our pursuit of becoming servants. We are the community coming to be known as missional. You know, I had an interesting experience this week, and I'll close with this. I had an interesting experience this week where I was meeting with, uh, some of you know our friend Jenna, who's been here a few times. And we've been seeking to serve and bless Jenna, who is one of those low-income single moms. So hooray for me. You know, I was helping Jenna. No, I'm not, I'm not looking for that acclamation. But we were, uh, we were hanging out and just chatting, and we were, we were sitting in a park outside of Bagel Central, and then we were going to go back into Bagel Central. So as we're walking to Bagel Central, there's this brother every single day I go by. He is sitting there, and what is he doing? He's asking for money. Now, his name is Jay, because I've stopped and I've chatted with Jay before. It turns out that Jay, interestingly, spent some time living in St. Joseph, Michigan. And he said he used to work for a guy that used to go to Andrews University. So very fascinating. But, you know, every time I walk by Jay, and he says, Hey, brother, you got any money you can spare? I don't, and I really don't. He doesn't take credit card, and I don't have cash. But we walk by, and as we're walking by, Jenna says to me, man, I really feel like we should help him. I really feel like we should do something for Jay. And I said, yeah, I know, but I don't have any cash. I don't. She said, well, why don't we buy him food at Bagel Central? Now, I've done that once before for Jay, and I said, well, okay. I was like, okay. So we walk in the Bagel Central, and, um, and I said, well, why don't we just go ask him what he wants? For whatever reason, she's like, no, I don't think we should do that. I said, well, I'm going to go ask him. So I went out and asked him. He said, well, yeah, man, if you could get me a bagel and one of those fruit smoothie things. I said, okay, sure. So we go in, and, and, and I place the order, and I'm, uh, I'm, waiting, for the, I'm waiting for the bagel to arrive because they have to toast it and all that. And I look around, and there's no Jenna. What happened to Jenna? So I wait, I wait, and I wait. And finally, my, you know, the bagel comes, has cream cheese, and I walk out. And as I walk out back to Jay, there's Jenna. She's just sitting on the ground, just sitting next to Jay. She's just laughing up with him, and they're smiling, and they're having a great time. And I was like, oh, here you are, Jenna. And so I give Jay the bagel, and... Um, you know, he says, we're about to walk away. And he says, could you guys pray for me? He says, I don't have, I don't, I, my glasses broke. And I, I need to get them fixed. He didn't have them on his face. He says, I need to get them fixed. And I gave them to another church lady, and I don't know if she's going to be able to get them fixed or not. 
And he says, so, so could you guys just pray for me that the glasses get fixed and I can get them back? And I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. And so right there, we, I said, Jake, can I pray with you right now, right here? And he said, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So I prayed for him. And then we left. And then as we were back in Bagel Central, I just said to Jenny, you know, I feel like God is calling me to do something more than simply give Jay a bagel. Like, and she's like, well, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I was like, I don't know. Like, it's still, it's still going on in my brain. Like, not just give somebody a handout, but this is a child of God that has, hum- he's a human being that deserves love and belonging. And um, I think of that phrase, I'm not there, but I am a disciple coming to be known as missional. So I'm, I'm, I'm just prayerfully thinking about, okay, what God, what, what are you calling me to do and to be in the life of Jay, who just sits there hour after hour after hour? And, you know, funny thing is, I, I, I left, and then a few hours later I came back because I had to meet somebody else there. And... Um, I walk by, and he looks up to me and goes, hey, 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 hey. He says, really good news. My glasses were fixed. He's like, your prayer, you know, your prayers worked. He says, I still have another 10 days before I can get them. I don't know why that is, but, but, um, you know, just something like glasses, right? Glasses, little simple things. So God is calling us to be the community coming to be known as missional. We don't have to be perfect, but God just asks us to be available. And if if the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, if we allow that to penetrate our hearts, we will see the opportunities around us everywhere. We say, oh, man, I don't have time for that. I got so much going on. Like, I got all my work. I got school. I got this. I got that. I got the lawn to mow. I have dishes to do. I have children to run after all the time. You remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Ask God to show you his heart of love as revealed on the cross. Allow that to mold and to shape our hearts and our actions towards the least of these by his grace.